Folks, this is going to be a long episode. In fact, it might be so long that you'll want to listen to it in chunks. In this episode, I'm going to talk about the protests and riots and racism in America. I generally avoid such topics because there are so many people already commenting on them. Even if you say something new and substantive, you'll almost certainly offend somebody. It's like a minefield. You'll set off somebody's alarms and then they won't hear anything else. Instead, they'll start drawing on their pool of existing arguments to attack you. You'll never get past their initial impression, and nothing will be moved forward. I'm going to talk about these issues, but by and large, I'm going to sidestep the standard tropes. You've already heard them. They bring nothing to the table. So let me start with a simple idea I think everybody can agree on. Something is deeply wrong. As humans, when something is wrong, we want to find somebody to blame for it. If somebody is responsible, then we can fix what is wrong. If somebody is responsible, then we can fix it, perhaps, through anger and action. The problem is is that blame and anger rarely solve anything. They almost never identify a way out of complex situations. And the situation is complex. In fact, it is a tragedy. I use the word tragedy intentionally, and I'm using it in reference to slavery. I'll use a Holocaust parallel. The Holocaust was a terrible crime. The suffering of elderly Holocaust survivors today and the special mental illness challenges they face is an ongoing tragedy, even though the crime itself has passed. Even though there are new criminals, new anti-Semites, the crime of the Holocaust itself is past. So I'm not going to use the word tragedy to erase responsibilities for slavery. Instead, I'm using the word to describe the effects of that slavery today. Those who enslaved black Americans are long dead. And while we might want to be angry, people who happen to share their skin color are not necessarily an appropriate topic. About 7.5% of American families owned slaves prior to the Civil War. Considering the massive waves of immigration, it should be clear that the vast majority of white Americans are not descended from slaveholding Southerners. When you consider that 70% of the free population during the Civil War was from the North, it is likely that the descendants of the families of Union veterans who fought and died to bring an end to slavery dramatically outnumber the descendants of slaveholders. And so while slavery was a terrible crime and there were terrible criminals, those criminals are no longer here. In today's world, slavery's legacy is a tragedy, but it is an ongoing tragedy. Some Jews, and I am Jewish, like to point to the Holocaust and say, we bounce back from that. Why can't African Americans recover from something that happened 80 years earlier? The counterargument tends to be that slavery is worse. Fact is, is both were horrible things. This is, in fact, a false comparison. The tragedy of the Holocaust is an echo. It's a remnant. The tragedy of slavery is not, and the difference is inherent in the very idea of slavery itself. The Holocaust was an incomparable crime. It was an incredible wound. The horrors and suffering in humanity were arguably unparalleled in human history. Entire regions had their Jewish communities simply erased through industrialized killing. There was no profit in it, only hate. And yet, in its effect on a culture, American slavery was worse. Jews who survived the Holocaust emerged knowing where they had come from. 
They had a history, they had a culture, they had a thread leading back millennia, and they knew it was on them, the almost broken survivors, to carry that thread forward. Not everybody was up to it, but those who were not knew they were there to form, or those who were, knew they were there to form the next link in the chain of Jewish history. They had something greater to hold on to. African-American slaves did not have that. The disruption of decades and centuries of slavery was so complete and so extended that their chain of history was almost completely destroyed. I wrote one of my best stories about this very idea. You can ask me for it. It's called The Tapestry of Michael Jr. Of course, slavery does more than eliminate the links to the past. Fundamentally, slavery is about eliminating will. It is how you keep slaves. You break their ability to think about the future or about the past. You shatter their ability to hold on to something greater. You break their initiative. Slavery makes whipped animals of men. Matzah, the unleavened bread Jews eat on Passover, is called the bread of affliction. I believe it earns this moniker for a simple reason. The Jews had 14 days warning that they would be leaving Egypt. Despite this, they did not bake provisions for the journey. They made dough as they were leaving and it never had a chance to rise. This was because slavery had robbed them of initiative. Even knowing what was going to happen, they couldn't take the steps necessary to plan for it. We see this idea, this theme, again and again in the story of the Exodus. Even after being freed, the people wanted to return to the material wealth of Egypt. They did not value their freedom because they had not yet regained their initiative. Clearly, many Jews were robbed of their initiative during the Holocaust. But as terrifying as it was, they had lives before the Holocaust. They had some basis to return to. African-American slaves, the last of whom had been imported 58 years before emancipation, had no such baseline. Because of this, when we compare the Jewish and African-American experience, the proper point of comparison isn't the Holocaust. It is the Egyptian slave experience. And that experience paints a very different picture. The Jewish people have had 3,000 years to get over slavery. In our telling, God himself brought us out of Egypt, and then he tried and tried and tried with miracle after miracle to form us into a free and responsible people. And while progress was made, even he failed. One can argue whether the failure lasted decades or centuries or even millennia. It seems to me that Jews are still struggling for their own freedom and their own identity. Every Passover we sing next year in Jerusalem. When we sing that, we are talking about finally achieving our freedom after thousands of years of trying. Even in our own state, in our own land, we struggle with the idea of our own empowerment. Somehow, it feels unnatural, and we've had millennia to get used to it. In the Haggadah, the annual hours-long storytelling we share to commemorate our exodus from Egypt, we talk about the miracle of a whole nation being freed from slavery. Kids might think that a single slave can sneak away, but sneaking away a whole nation is hard. But I like to flip the question. A single person can leave slavery and join another society. They can become a part of something else. They can join a free people. They can find a culture with history and initiative and rise above their enslavement. But a whole nation can't do this. When a whole nation is freed, it is left fundamentally unmoored. The Jews leaving Egypt and the African Americans leaving American slavery share a reality. It is a sober reality about the challenges of escape.
But the African-Americans have it worse in one other way. The Jewish people left Egypt. At the crossing of the Red Sea, we saw our oppressors die. But the African-American slaves remained oppressed among their oppressors. There was no sudden step into freedom. Instead, there was a brief window of relief before sharecropping and Jim Crow shut it down. Even today, there are those who celebrate the oppression and seek to recreate it. Give a historical example. Haiti was the site of the only successful slave revolt in human history. The Haitians didn't even have to live with their oppressors. In 1804, they killed almost every European in Haiti, including women and children. Nonetheless, despite 200 years of freedom, Haiti continues to suffer the echoes of its past oppressions. So all in all, we should be very careful about judging a people that has been freed. The wounds such a culture endures from their enslavement are vast and deep. The descendants of slaves aren't like poor immigrants or Holocaust survivors. They didn't survive slavery personally, but they suffer and continue to suffer from something that is in some ways far worse. Reparations won't help with this, and violence won't help with this. Getting an entire culture free of the shackles of slavery is not some easy thing you can do with a single policy. Incredibly, I believe so much of America is walking into something like these shackles. They are refuting, refusing, and attacking the past. They see nothing worth preserving, and they are replacing their own will with the desires of nature, undermining the very concept of human will as something that can overcome our mortal limitations. In our modern world, to deny what is natural is both a crime and an impossibility. This worldview makes us into little more than animals. Instead of connecting to some great external goal, people are trying to connect to their own personal reality, and this reality may not be very real. While some things and some people are immutable, in most people, most things can be adjusted and adapted. If we have to seek it out, then it is almost by nature immaterial and small. So instead of reaching out to serve a larger goal, we find ourselves reaching in to serve an ever smaller one. And there is no reward in that. Some argue that the self-actualization is the only way to resolve internal conflict, that it is the only way to truly be at peace, to truly feel happiness. But this inward search does not lead to happiness. America's embrace and seeking of its true reality has led to disaster. As America has become more and more focused on self-actualization, Americans have been racked with fundamental social issues. I see this most tangibly in suicide rates. For 10 to 14-year-old girls, suicide rates are up 240% in the last 20 years. For boys, they are up 74%. Among 15 to 24-year-olds, the rates are 93% and 35%. These are catastrophic numbers, and they are mirrored by the rise in serious mental illness. Americans are falling apart, and I think this self-enslavement is a driver of it. We are not discovering our contented selves. Instead, we are discovering just how limited ourselves are. To me, it seems that the problems of slavery do not face the descendants of actual slaves alone. They increasingly face those whose ancestors have never been slaves. I want to return to the parallels between the Jewish people in a more positive way, because while God does not entirely succeed in raising the Jewish people up, great progress was made. The stories in the Torah about the successes and failures along that rocky road to freedom, and while some might consider the stories entirely mythical, 
that remained the single most influential collection of stories about the progression from slavery to freedom. The concepts within those stories have something to offer to any people seeking to become free, responsible, creative, and fulfilled. Of course, I'm not the first to try to unpack these stories. African Americans themselves have long pointed to the liberation of Jews from Egypt as an archetype. In fact, when Bibles were distributed to slaves in the Caribbean, they were bolderized to remove any references to freedom from slavery, because the white owners understood the dangers of those stories. But what I want to focus on might be a bit different than what they tend to focus on. Rather than the escape from Egypt itself, I want to focus on the aftermath. There are an enormous numbers of lessons from these stories. Early in the process of freedom, the people are tasked with judging one another, with judges of ten, of fifty, and a hundred, etc. They take on within themselves the responsibility of being judges and of being judged by their peers. We can see parallels to this with an emphasis on community policing. Black leaders in certain neighborhoods are telling locals not to call the police for minor issues, but to try to resolve those issues themselves. This is a positive development. The process continues with the actual definition of laws, laws meant to establish the basics of community. As community policing develops, one can hope that a form of law will take, will take form. Otherwise, there will just be chaos. In the disputes between my children, what is right is often unclear. But if the decisions establish a precedent, a consistent rule, then the likelihood of discrimination against one kid is far less likely, and things can become predictable for all of them. So my children have a court, and they actually determine law for themselves. Otherwise, I fear I end up with chaos. Notably, the laws I'm talking about are not federal or state law. My children have laws. Instead, I'm talking about community law. Community law may lack any form of coercive enforcement or any geographic zone. Jewish law courts are voluntary and fit within the confines of modern secular law. The punishments associated with these laws may culminate with social exclusion and rejection, but they can still have a force and they can still build and grow with a system of judgment. The first step, then, that we see in the Torah is community responsibility. This is why I've written about the idea of hyperlocal policing, where neighborhoods hire and manage their own beat cops. However, there is something far more important than responsibility and law. From the very beginning of the Exodus, the text focuses on something beyond freedom itself. It focuses on purpose. The purpose of the Jewish people being released from slavery was not their freedom. If it had been, then there would have been no reason for the slavery in the first place. The purpose of the Jewish people was to serve as a testament to God. The slavery and exodus were there to teach us that we couldn't do it on our own, that we needed God. This concept of a mission, of a special purpose, is what has held the people together for thousands of years. I believe every people has a special purpose. Every people has something that reaches beyond itself and its own time. It has something that gives it meaning. In all of human history, an entire people being liberated from actual slavery is an almost unheard of event. It's happened with Jews, it happened with Haitians, and it has happened with African Americans. For these people, the concept of purpose is especially important. They don't have the inertial forces of an established society to guide them. They must find and hold on to something else. Freedom is not 
enough. Just living for yourself does not lead to peace or happiness or accomplishment. This concept is a recurring one in Torah. In the Garden of Eden, Eve is struck by a sensation of ta'ava before she eats the fruit. The same word is used later when the people come to rest in a place of comfort, when they want to kill and eat meat, and when the nation desires the possessions of its neighbors. As I weeded, this word suggests a desire to destroy the long term in the service of short-term pleasure. You kill the animal in order to eat it. This is a force that undermines us when we are blessed and when we are seeking to fulfill no greater goal than our own happiness. The destruction this force represents is the result of freedom without mission. It is the consequence of not finding a purpose greater than ourselves. In the Torah, the people's purpose is realized at least in part through the building of the Mishkan, the tabernacle. It is a place where the finite is made infinite. It is a place where the time-bound and the physical are made timeless and spiritual. It is a place where, where, where purpose is realized. This concept is represented powerfully in the ritual of Azazel. This is typically translated as the ritual of the scapegoat. There are two goats. One is sacrificed to God. The name of God used in this sacrifice is an amalgamation of the words for the past, the present, and the future. This is the goat that becomes part of forever. The other goat is dedicated to Azazel. The word literally means the goat of disappearance. To me, the lesson is clear. We all die, but our lives can be dedicated to the infinite and become a, can become a part of the infinite, or we can disappear as if we never existed. Freedom isn't the point. It isn't enough. A freed people must be able to hold onto something greater. They have to hold onto something greater than freedom itself. This concept of purpose drives lesson after lesson in the Torah. It drives our growth in the Torah. The imperfect, those who knew they would die in the desert, were tasked with teaching their children their purpose and its power. The people were given rituals that reminded them of that purpose. Our calendar goes through a cycle of learning from the basic survival of Passover with his emphasis on food that even children can understand, to the gratitude of Shavuot with its gifts to God, to the symbolic celebration of a relationship on Sukkot, to the pure joy that needs no symbols of Shemini Atzeret. Every year we relive our purpose and our growth. Even the life of Moshe himself celebrates this process. He does not enter the promised land, but he can see it and the future it will have. Like all of us, Moshe left behind a deeply imperfect world. But if we live our lives well, we can know that we help make that world just a bit more beautiful. Of course, in a life of purpose, we shy away from forces that undermine that purpose. Men of name who serve only their own reputations are to be avoided. The Torah condemns them in many places, and in some places they are destroyed actively by God. Meanwhile, we do not follow those who seek money or pleasure. Instead, we welcome the stranger who joins us in our mission. And we learn to forgive, because anger does not move us forward. Amalek, the counterpoint to the children of Israel, was angry at Abraham, at Avraham. They chose to interpret Avraham's actions in the worst possible way. And then they not only remembered Avraham's actions, they held on to their anger from generation to generation. Hundreds of years later, they attacked the people as soon as they left Egypt. Amalek carried an incredible grudge from one man to millions of his descendants hundreds of years later. 
the Jewish people are commanded to remember to wipe out the memory of Amalek. We normally read it as erasing other people's memory of them. But if we remember to do that, then we have created a paradox. I see a far simpler interpretation. When we wipe out their memory, we wipe out their ability to remember. Amalek lives on anger and preserves it forever, but we move on. Our mission is not to carry a grudge. In this theme, the Jewish people are commanded to treat the Egyptian well because we were strangers in their land. We are commanded to do this just one generation after we were freed from their oppression. We remember what happened, but we do not preserve the anger. All of this is about Jews after the Exodus, but it doesn't answer the question for African Americans in the United States today. The great question them facing them is, what mission should they be pursuing? What special concept have African Americans learned that they must share with the world? What timeless ideal? How can they be an agent of growth and improvement and blessing to the world, and thus acquire a mission that is greater than the here and the now? In seeking this mission, let me establish one thing first. I can only speculate. I can't even say that some of my best friends are black. I grew up in rural Oregon, and I've been a part of a religious Jewish community for most of my life. Black people, including religious Jewish black people, are rare in my world. In addition, I believe that there is no such thing as a singular goal or mission for people. The Jewish world hardly has one. I like to think we have a religious core that has sustained us as, sustained us as a distinct culture for millennia, but many Jews, while benefiting from the emphasis on education that that core insists on, don't identify as religious in any way. So when I talk about a mission, I'm not talking about a culture and lockstep. I'm talking about trying to establish a core thread, and only a core thread. So as I take a shot at this, keep in mind both my limits and the limits inherent in the question itself. I'm doing this for the purpose of stimulating thought, not imposing or even necessarily suggesting answers. To put it another way, this is a straw man, and perhaps a real idea and a useful one can come from it. For me, the mission can't be anger. Anger fizzles and burns and destroys. For me, the answer can't be equality. African Americans should aim to be superior in their own way, just like any other people or person for that matter. I call it a minority superiority complex. I wrote another story about that. Instead, I'm looking for a path, and the salient connector is once again slavery. Early in the Torah, God says to Cain that sin is crouching at his door so that he can dominate it. I see the concept as a simple one. Personal growth and responsibility is created through challenges to that responsibility. The Jewish people were enslaved so that they could know that God alone could rescue them. Their will and initiative were robbed so that they knew they needed God to rescue them and redeem them. The will and initiative of African Americans was also robbed of them. They were freed by the Union, with both black and white soldiers giving their lives in the war. They lost their initiative and their will. Perhaps it was so that the will they developed afterwards would be their own, truly their own and they would own it and have a claim to it that is greater than the claim that others have to their own will. Just as the temptation of sin could have made Cain a better man, the enslavement of African Americans can make the responsibility their descendants learn greater than that of others. So perhaps a mission for African Americans can be to teach all of us about responsibility. 
As an outsider, I see so much of black religion focused on black responsibility, and so much of non-religious black culture focused on black pride. As I see it, so much focuses on repairing what is wrong within the community. Even the Nation of Islam, which centers on the idea of black empowerment, is focused on the community itself. So little of this effort focuses on what African Americans can teach and do for the rest of the world. Mission comes from what you can bring the greater world, not from what you can bring yourself. Many want to see blacks succeed despite their challenges, and I think this aims too low. I think blacks can succeed in their own way because of their challenges, and that can raise all of us up. This sort of success isn't about one's own rewards. It is not an end unto itself. Instead, it becomes dedication to the possibility and the potential of human will. Let me give one tangible example. In the world of conservative political thought, the greatest problem in the black community is families without fathers. People see the burden on mothers. People see the burden on children, particularly sons. It seems, though, that few see the burden on the fathers themselves. A child is a chance to teach. It is a chance to recognize and carry forward one's own mission. I believe that when men leave, for whatever reason, they are the ones who suffer most of all. They may sacrifice to raise their children, but it is a sacrifice that yields tremendous rewards. I spoke about Ta'ava. I defined it as the destruction of the future in search of short-term pleasure. The sacrifice of being a father is the opposite. It is about taking on a short-term burden that creates a magnificent future. It gives purpose to life, and it rewards those who take it on. It takes a life that is focused on the here and now, and it gives it the opportunity to become a part of forever. Of course, this sort of goal does not come without its costs. In the Torah, the high priest must be kept so far from death that he can't attend the funerals of his own parents. The high priest lost some piece of his own humanity in service of his particular mission. The goal of modeling the human will may well come at the cost of pleasure, of fame, and of wealth. It may come at some cost to desires that we consider purely natural and purely human. But it is precisely that control that establishes and demonstrates the power and possibility of free will. One of the most famous episodes in the Torah is the sin of the calf. After the sin of the calf, God says he will destroy the people and replace them with those who are more purely able to fulfill their mission. But Moshe protects them. He says that they must stay who they are. They must carry out their mission despite or because of their limitations. I don't believe the African-American community should seek to become wasps or should seek to compete in all the same areas others compete in. Certainly individuals all vary. But as a body, every culture has its own strengths and its own roads to accomplishment. I spoke about slaves losing the chain from the past to the future. Well, that chain can be established again, but it isn't done by severing the links. Instead, we should recognize our unique cultures and build a chain that represents who we are and who we strive to be, not the priorities and attributes of others. This, too, is a recurring theme in the Torah. We are told again and again not to copy the values of Egypt or of Canaan, two successful and built-up societies around us. Instead, we are to seek our own path. 
in this culture is so much more than names, foods, and clothing. It defines so much about what we think and what we can do. It speaks to an inner truth, an inner truth that whatever it is shouldn't be abandoned to seek the trappings of others. Let's say for a moment that the mission meets with success, tremendous success. That would create challenges of its own. In the Torah, that idea is captured in the story of Bilam. The success of the children of Israel created fear among others. It drove the Midianites into an act of retribution that cost everyone involved in fundamental ways. Communication, especially in an environment of growth and success, is critical. The mission adopted by people must be clear, by culture must be clear, and those who are not enemies to that mission must know that they face no threat. Those who fear black will should be made to understand that there is no basis for such fear. Jews, however, are still not particularly good at this. People still see all sorts of nefarious plans just because we meet with success. Of course, there will be enemies to such a mission. There are real enemies to the Jewish people as well. Those enemies could include those who see human will as an enemy to their own beliefs and desires, their own belief that nature commands what we must do. There are even those, and I genuinely believe they are rare, who believe blacks should only have limited will. There will be enemies, and there must be rules established for when and how they can be acted against. The very existence of those rules will assuage those who fear black will. By knowing who, how, and when a group will lash out, you can understand how to avoid such a conflict and understand that such a conflict is not desired. Go back to another thing here. If we go way back, the, temp the people of the Tower of Babel were described using some very interesting words. Using the Hebrew roots, they whitened the white, darkened the dark, and used bricks for stones. We can think that they were just talking about construction techniques, but perhaps the story is talking about society itself. They were extremists who demanded conformity in their, in their society. Instead of the rough, hewn, and uneven shape of stones, they wanted perfect cubes or rectangles, whatever you want to call them, perfect bricks that would fit into their wall. Much later in the story, the Jewish people are commanded to write the words of Torah on plaster that lays over stones. The Jewish people are supposed to use stones, imperfect stones. They are creating a smooth surface through law and a shared history. But the reality underneath is not smooth. As I read these two stories, we are not meant to be bricks mortared together with the divide between good and bad as sharp as the edge of a perfectly formed block. We are meant to be more like stones stacked together and joined through plaster that smooths over our imperfections. Our laws, our cultural expectations, our goals, all of them should be built upon humanity. They should not replace it. To put it another way, it is better to strive for ideals and fail to meet them than to have no ideals at all. While hypocrisy might show human weakness, it might also show that we strive for something better. So how would all this actually look? In the Torah, there is a cycle of responsibility, of law, of ritual, and of growth. And I think the same applies here. Community policing, responsible to and managed by the community, is a first step. It represents self-responsibility. Community laws must follow. They must be fair and empowering. The first laws in the Torah are basic ones, respect for life, relationships, property, honor, and peace. That's the Ten Commandments. But they built from there, establishing a pattern of growth. Eventually, the laws incorporate even ritual. 
Juneteenth is about one holiday, but holidays and rituals can celebrate and reinforce continual growth. A cycle that celebrates and builds on the values and culture that are unique to African Americans can be established and reinforced. And that ritual cycle can flow back into community responsibility. A virtuous cycle of responsibility and laws and rituals can grow together to establish a better reality. None of this is intended to lay the responsibility for the current situation at the feet of the African-American community. This is not a recipe for acceptance, for equality, or for love. Just look at the Jewish experience. None of these things have been secured by Jews. When we were weak, we were hated. And now when we seem so strong that we have managed to ban anti-Semitic books and images, we are once again hated. No, this is only a recipe for pride and continuity and joy in the face of adversity. This does not abolish racism. Instead, it is a recipe for lives of confidence and meaning despite or even because of oppression. If anything, the Jewish experience and our continued failure to gain acceptance despite our many attempts to integrate leads me to believe that there is no solution to this sort of hate. It can be marginalized, but it can never be erased. Before I end, I want to talk about the Torah's perspective on racism and slavery. Among certain communities, an off-quoted passage is used as a justification for racism. After the flood, Noah drinks himself and Noah drinks himself into a stupor, as you do when you witness mass death. His son appears to rape him while he is passed out. When he wakes up, Noah says, Cursed be Canaan, a slave of slaves shall he be unto his brethren. The reason this statement has racist implications is that some try to make Canaan out to be blacks. Of course, the Torah is a separate word for the great black nation of Ethiopia, Kush. That is the word that is most commonly used. It is even a term of racism in modern Israel. Kush was not descended from Canaan. The Torah itself says that Canaan and Kush were brothers. This statement could be used as justification for the servitude of Canaanites, but I tend to see it as yet another example of the limits of human blessings and human curses. Even the utterances of great men have limits to their power. It certainly shouldn't be used as justification for our own behavior. A second passage, often quoted by slaveholders in the South, legally established owning slaves in perpetuity. Of course, the Torah was written in a world that was largely driven by slave labor. That was human reality prior to the harnessing of energy sources such as coal and oil. Interestingly, one of the ancient societies that least relied on slavery was that of Egypt. A single 100-watt light bulb, just to give context, uses as much energy as a single slave can generate. So, in a way, we all have the equivalent of many slaves in our homes. However, this passage puts a critical limit on slavery. A passage in the Torah has a provision for buying slaves from neighboring countries, but there is no provision for selling them. Instead, they are called an inheritance in perpetuity. That might seem to be particularly cruel, but it actually limits slavery. Taking on a slave is taking them on for as long as you and they have descendants. This may be well and good if you have property to work, but you won't necessarily have this. Then the slaves become a burden best freed. Interestingly, we can see this in the story of Ulysses S. Grant, who's been in the news recently. When he was near bankruptcy as a young man, he refused to sell the slave his father-in-law had given him. Instead, he had him freed. Let's say he couldn't have sold him. Then his only option would have been to free him. In essence, these rules provide a timeout for slavery. 
If the nations around you aren't providing slaves for sale, you can't restock your slave population, and you will free your slaves at some point if you can't support them and you can't sell them. Given the vicissitudes of life, this is a recipe for slavery in a world that has slavery, but a recipe for a slave-free existence once slavery disappears from the surrounding cultures. Southern American slavery, with the initial import of slaves from faraway places and the sale of slaves once acquired, broke the functional limiting principle of this passage. The third passage of interest deals with explicit racism. Miriam and Aaron were speaking against Moshe because he had married a Cushite woman. God punishes Miriam with tzarat, a miraculous disease which we translate as leprosy. Traditionally, Jews learn from this that tzarat is a punishment for gossip, but I read it far more broadly. Because of the manner in which tzarat strikes and the manner in which it is resolved, it is clear to me that it is a punishment for hubris. It is a punishment for thinking you are better and you don't need the support of others or of God. Gossip is a part of this. You put others down in order to lift yourself up. It is one of the manifestations of hubris. Tarat is resolved by admitting you need the guidance of others and by declaring to yourself that you are impure. Tarat teaches the limits of pride to those who depend too heavily upon it. In the story of Miriam and Aaron, it manifests as racism. This story serves as a moral caution for any people who depend on pride for their own self-worth. The United States was founded on the principles of human freedom and self-government. It is a dark irony that compromises made to ensure the viability of this new state were directly in contravention to those principles. The conflicts between ideals and practicality form the fundamental paradox at the core of the United States. But those ideals remain. And I believe, just as with the hypocrisy, it is far better to have had those ideals and failed to meet them than not to have had them at all. It is still better to have those ideals and fail to meet them than not to have them at all. For all of our imperfections, I like to believe that the ideals of freedom and the equality of men as made in the image of the divine remain among us, remains with us. But even as we honor freedom and the equality of men, we must remember that these are not an end unto themselves. All of us, the descendants of slaves, the descendants of those who have never been slaves, should strive to be so much more than simply free and equal. Thank you for listening.